0: Welcome to the battleground of ballots and democracy, where the winners have the opportunity to reshape the future for the foreseeable foreseeable future, I guess. Um, But welcome back to another episode of Diplomatic Review. I'm your host, Cal Shaw. breaking the ice with a couple of short news stories before we dive into the like global whirlwind of elections coming up um a washington state senator was arrested in hong kong recently uh, on this morning actually october 24th just dated the show but arrested in hong kong on gun charges he somehow managed to get through um, baggage screenings in Portland, Oregon, and then he flew out of San Francisco all the way to Hong Kong with a unloaded handgun on his person. Um, he claims this is per the New York Times. He claims that he dug into his bag to get a piece of gum and ended up finding a gun. Um, he immediately turned himself in in Hong Kong, and he's claiming it was an honest mistake. But this is just absolutely crazy. And this is something this is like the nature of the show. This is what I want to do. I want to talk about things that happen outside of America. I want to talk about foreign elections. I want to talk about international institutions. I want to talk about foreign policy, you know, international relations, foreign affairs, all that stuff. So moving on to the second little short icebreaker story. Big news, I would say, for a lot of people who, you know, kind of care about the like Western security apparatus that is NATO. Um, Erdogan, the Turkish
1: president? I'm
0: looking it up. So I looked it up. It is the president of Turkey. I just, for some reason, was questioning myself. But Prince of Erdogan, the president of Turkey, um, has submitted Sweden's NATO bid to a parliament, to Turkish parliament, rather, for ratification. Um, Now, this is according to Reuters, which, if anybody has been paying attention to... A series of events geopolitically since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, NATO's expanded. NATO now includes Finland, a country that borders Russia, actually has the longest border with Russia amongst NATO allies now. And Sweden also applied to join NATO, which Sweden's uh, ascension into the exclusive club pardon, was halted uh, by Turkey and Hungary. Uh, For a number of reasons, whether it's like Islamophobia or whatever else, um, it was a big issue. And now, as of October 23rd, again, according to Reuters, Turkey's President Erdogan submitted Sweden's NATO bid to parliament for ratification. Now, no guarantee that the parliament ratifies such a thing. I I don't know if there's a gauge on how they would vote or not, but I'm assuming because Erdogan says, okay, well, here, let's do it, we'll do it, they'll, like, back it. Especially because another NATO ally, especially an ally like Sweden, would be kind of a valuable asset to have if there was some sort of conflict with, say, Russia. Now, interestingly, Hungary has not done this yet. So hopefully a lot of people are hoping, and Reuters is hoping, I'm hoping, I'm sure my Swedish friend Nils is hoping, um, that that Hungary follows suit on this. And hopefully we have Sweden as the latest, newest member of the NATO alliance. Now the last little short story, this is per the Wall Street Journal, uh, I'm going to read the headline here. China Coast Guard ship collides with Philippine boat in South China Sea. Now this is happening... During a time of increased tension between multiple countries in the South China Sea, the United States, China, so on and so forth. And this all stems from a single issue that we're not going to get into too much today. But it's specifically the Nine Dash Line, which if you don't know, it's the reason why the Barbie movie was banned in Vietnam, I believe. Um, it's, It's a very interesting thing. It's causing a lot of geopolitical drama, especially in the South China Sea, because that's where it is. Um, It is something that we will talk about on the show at some point, but it's, it's crazy. It's actually part of the reason why I believe China has more border disputes than they have borders, but it's going to be interesting to see how this situation develops, because I don't think China wants any sort of conflict. I don't think the Philippines want any sort of conflict, and I know we don't want any sort of conflict. So I'm assuming that reparations would just be paid and people will essentially move on. Tensions will still be high. but (sighs) So moving on into the big event, the main story of this episode, we are on the cusp of actually it's already begun. It has already started a mega election cycle of sorts. An election mega-cycle, depending on how you want to say it. Now, Politico has deemed this an election mega-cycle, and they claim that the world isn't ready. And why is that? So, (laughs) there are a lot of elections. This year, next year, and in one case that we'll talk about in a minute, 2025. But we are... On the cusp of world-changing elections, some of the most powerful and strongest democracies in the world are going under are going through rather uh, very crucial elections. Now, there's always elections going on somewhere in the world, and I'm obviously not going to be able to cover all of them, but I'm going to try my best to cover some of the more crucial elections coming up. And starting with the Australian Voice referendum, which, if you're a fan of diplomatic review, you heard Austral- Australia. You heard Phoebe, uh, Pass and I talk about the voice referendum, um, in our in, in the last episode. Unfortunately, it has not passed, um, it failed. So, my, my condolences to the Indigenous communities of Australia and those who voted yes. Um, there's still work to be done, but it does, it does hurt trans- transitional justice for uh, Indigenous peoples both in Australia and in other anglosphere countries and just throughout the world um so not a good start to the election megacycle i would say for for the woke mob i guess but (laughs) uh the next crucial election is uh were were the recent polish elections now the information about the polish elections that i'm going to use is coming from the council on foreign relations um but the polish elections for those who don't know The Law and Justice Party has controlled Poland, I believe, for maybe 11 years. Something like that. And they are a right-leaning to far-right government. And a lot of people, Council of Foreign Relations being one of them, has attributed the Law Law and Justice Party, rather, to democratic backsliding in both Poland and Eastern Europe as a whole. Now... That comes from different policies that the Law and Justice Party has pushed, like restricting uh, LGBTQ rights, immigration, um, and, and some, some judicial reforms that kind of consolidate power, um, similar to what Joe and I talked about in an episode of Policy Wonk last season uh, about the Netanyahu jud- judicial reforms. And the this election was crucial from a European Union perspective. It's, yes, it's a national election, but it's more of a, it was more of a bellwether for how next year, 2024's European Parliament elections are going to go. And the Law and Justice Party, the populist right-wing party of Poland, still has a plurality of of. Seats in Parliament, they still have the. They're still the largest single party in Polish Parliament, but they are very, very, very likely to fall short of a majority. So they are going to have the first opportunity to form a government. A lot of people, many, many people, as Joe would say, or as the former president would say, are saying that they're not going to be able to form a government. Then the task would fall fall uh, to the opposition civic coalition which is a centrist center-right center-left uh coalition of you know just opposition parties um and that is led by former prime minister donald tusk who is a former high-ranking official uh from the european union which means he's very pro-eu as opposed to the populist um law and justice party so it's, it's a good sign for the European Union and for kind of the established liberal international order, which I've talked about before. Um, and it's, it's just very important that the world and Europe sees this as maybe the end of the populist backlash to globalization that we have been seeing kind of since probably since the Tea Party was, was started. Right around, right before the 2012 US elections. And and, and since then, it's just gotten worse. Uh, Donald Trump rode that to the White House, and now we have some crazy people in Congress. But moving on to some more recent elections that have already happened, already kicked off this mega cycle Argentina is going through a presidential race, and they are now going into a runoff election. Uh, slated to happen next month. Now, the the libertarian economist candidate Javier Malay, Malay Malay Malay, um, Javier Malay is supposed to face off against Sergio Massa, Argentina's economy minister, in runoff next month. And this is again per New York Times. Um, So they've had they've had multiple votes and now they're going to go into the runoff again. I've said that already. But it's very important because it's it's just a it's a leadership election in South America. And it's going to kind of. It's going to kind of dictate the way that South American elections are going to go because there's another there's a couple more crucial uh, Latin American elections coming up, one of which we're going to talk about on the show. Now, many people, um, and, and including the New York Times, they're comparing Javier Malay to Donald Trump. They're comparing Javier Malay to Bolsonaro. And, and that's concerning because, similar to the Poland situation, we're kind of giving the people an opportunity to kind of back away from that populist approach to politics that we saw significantly rise kind of mid-Obama era. So then, like I said, it's, it's, going to, it's not going to necessarily influence, but it's going to be kind of a bellwether for how other Latin American elections are going to go. And another very important one is the upcoming presidential election in Venezuela. Um, uh, this is another New York Times article. This is from the 22nd and 23rd of October. Maria Corina Machado is the, the opposition uh, nominee to be the next president of Venezuela. Now, this is going to be the first Venezuelan presidential election in recent memory. And... The way that it's structured is very interesting. The opposition parties held a primary to see who's going to be the candidate to go up against the uh, Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela. And they, they decided on Maria Karina Machado, who won a plurality of votes, she, of votes. She did not win the majority, but that's what happens in a crowded primary. Uh, I believe she won roughly 25% of the votes, and the next candidate didn't even get five. So it's, it's almost an overwhelming support for Machado in this election, and hopefully she can ride that all the way to the executive office of Venezuela. Now what does that mean for us? What does that mean for the United States? In this week's episode of Policy Wonk, Joe and I talk about immigration in the southern border for the first time. And a lot of the recent people coming to the southern border travel all the way from Venezuela. They're fleeing the Maduro government. And a a more centrist candidate like Machado would hopefully bring about some sort of reform and you know republicans would get what they want they would get less migrants coming to the border if we support this type of liberalization of venezuela and and on top of that venezuela sits on some oil reserves venezuela is a could be a crucial ally in latin america because of population because of their ability to combat gang violence their their ability to cooperate with with colombia but that's only if the Maduro government, I'm not going to say is ousted, but it's only if the Maduro government is, is challenged. And this type of liberalization is a good thing for democracy as a whole, for combating authoritarianism, for, I guess, U.S. interests in, in Latin America. And, you know, it's just, honestly, it's just really cool, you know. <laughs> But keeping it in the in the Spanish speaking world, um, in the Western Hemisphere, I guess uh, Mexico is also having a presidential election in 2024. Now this is this is important, obviously, because Mexico, crucial American ally. Now there's no formal military agreement with the, with Mexico, and there's there's but there's a ton of formal economic agreements, and the the future of leadership in Mexico is is. Super important to American interests, American security, and and just domestic politics. A, a solid leadership, a display of solid leadership in Mexico and cooperation with the United States is how we stop letting Republicans combat border issues, I guess. It's also how the, we, working together with Mexico, is how we achieve a humanitarian approach to the border crisis. Um, crisis. Finger quotes. But this is, according to Reuters, uh, Scheinbaum is leading in the polls, and Scheinbaum is the uh, Morena candidate slated to replace current president AMLO, uh, President Obrador. And she, she's winning in the polls against a, a more, more conservative
1: um a more conservative
0: candidate now the mexican elections are going to be extremely interesting to watch because
1: because it's going to be an opportunity
0: for the people of mexico the voters in mexico to decide whether or not they want to continue policies similar to AMLO or do they want something new? Now, I'm, I'm thinking, especially if the polling is correct, Reuters, um, I'm also thinking that the people in Mexico and the voters are going to, to support Morena. And, and, you know, I, I kind of hope so. I kind of I appreciate policies um, from President Obrador, and, and I'm looking to see Mexican leadership continue to to improve continue to work with the United States and and I'm hoping that American leadership kind of kind of reflects like reflects that kind of gives what is given So moving on moving out of the western hemisphere for now uh we're traveling to the European continent once again Um it's already been mentioned we, when we talked about Poland we talked about Hungary and all that that the European Parliament is having some elections in 2024. Now, the current uh, plurality party, the the largest individual party, or I guess uh, they're called political groups because it's a coalition of national parties, and, and it's very complicated. Actually, um, we might actually I might actually try to uh, bring on Cleveland State Professor uh, Dr. Lewis, who is a EU expert, uh, to talk about the. Parliament elections but uh for now you get me but anyways the largest individual political group in the european parliament and this is per their website is the group of european uh people's party they're christian democrats they are center-right think think angela merkel um think uh almost macron think think those types of candidates Uh, The second group would be S and D group of Progressive Alliance and Socialists and Democrats in the European Parliament. Um, I just messed that one up. Group of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats in the European Parliament. Now, for those candidates, think also Macron to an extent, but also think um, Olaf Scholz. Think um, like Social Democrats and. Little more left leaning, S and D is a is a kind of left of center group of, of politicians, but there's the second largest group. Uh, then there's Renew Europe, the group of Greens or the European Free Alliance, uh, European Conservatives and Reformists, Identity and Democracy, and then the left group in the European Parliament. Now, there are all sorts of political parties attached to these groups, but at the end of the day. These are the coalitions, these are the groups of parties that work together to achieve some sort of policy. Now, it's interesting that the population of the European Union is very similar to that of the United States, but they have 700-something representatives in their parliament, which means that they actually, each individual voter has more representation in the European parliament than I do in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, But that's just that's some reform stuff that we can talk about on policy wonk with Joe kind of expand the house type stuff. Now, it's interesting seeing the the European elections come up because this now I'm reading an article from Politico Um, hard right forces I top EU jobs as Poland heads to the polls. Now, this wasn't this was an article, obviously, that came out uh, prior to the Polish elections. But like I said earlier the Polish elections were going to be a bellwether they are going they were going to be a, a kind of dictating how we should approach the European parliament elections of
1: 2024 obviously the right did not win outright in the Polish elections
0: but that doesn't mean that the, that the right wing of the European Parliament is not going to be successful in 2024. And that's, that's, a, that's a problem, in my view. Um, it's going to be crucial, though. It's going to be influential in the history of, of mankind. It's going to be important for how, how the EU operates moving forward. Um, a lot of the far-right... Um, Parties in Europe tend to be more populist, more isolationist, more anti-European Union, and the left-wing parties tend to be more pro-European Union. Now, a, there's a b- even bigger issue looming over the heads of, of Europeans um, approaching this election, and that is the Russian war in Ukraine the the eu as is has been extremely supportive of ukraine and and they've been sending aid there's been talks of how europe it's hard for europe as a whole to enforce policies and to kind of make its opinion more more well known more respected because of a lack of a military now i'm not going to dive into to uh eu politics like that for now but there, there, it, it's, it's kind of the war in Ukraine has kind of spurred a lot of conversations when it comes to the European Union and some good some bad um, but a big one being the conversation of how to handle the war in Ukraine and if the far right wins in the European Parliament elections the, the state of the war in Ukraine shifts heavily into the favor of Vladimir Putin and the Russian government now depending on who you are you might like that, you might not. I personally don't like that. I, I personally don't think that Russia should have invaded a sovereign state. Um, but We'll talk about the Russian-Ukrainian conflict in an episode, I'm sure. Now, we're staying in Europe, but it's, it's an important national election coming up in the United Kingdom. Now, they have basically from now until, I believe, early January... Or early 2025 to call in call an election. Now, Labour has been killing it. The opposition in general has been killing it. Um, social Dems, uh,
1: Liberal Democrats, Lib Dems, um,
0: Greens—they've all been—they've uh, all been killing it in in local elections all over Europe. I mean, all over the UK. Oh, fuck. But staying in Europe and focusing on a more national election, now this is per the New York Times, um, labor in the United Kingdom has been doing significantly better than they have been for the last probably 13 years. Now, uh, this article specifically is talking about a, quote, double defeat for UK conservatives as labor snatches two seats. Um, The opposition party, Labor, um, overturned two Large conservative majorities um, in two parliamentary elections. Now, one of these seats that the Labour Party has been able to flip has voted consistently for the Tories, the Conservative Party, since 1931. Now, this this hard shift to Labour has, or I mean, Lib Dems, Greens, just opposition in general. This hard shift has come as there has been a backlash to the populist backlash of globalization that we saw with the brexit referendum the conservative party advocated substantially to for britain to leave the european union and now there's been some issues there's been some backlash to that where a lot of people said had they if brexit happened today knowing what they know now would they have voted?" the same way. And a lot of people said no. They would have voted to stay. Now, and, and I mean, there's some other issues that aren't necessarily 100% attached to Brexit. And it's, it comes from some conservative policies, like privatizing specific aspects of the NHS, the National Healthcare Service. or uh, There's some issues with privatizing different aspects of, of public life, whether it's Thames Water, or the NHS, or things like that. And that's just from Conservative policies, Um, and there's also an issue with inflation. There's a housing crisis, and a lot of these things, a lot of British people are contributing to Conservative Party policies. Now, Rishi Sunak has quite the dilemma on his hands. So, what does he do? We talked on Policy Wonk a couple weeks back about Rishi Sunak essentially kicking off a culture war in the United Kingdom. He defends cars, he talks about why he's defunding high-speed rail projects in north of England and into Scotland, and and things like that. And He's kind of like shifting more to the right, which is not what he should be doing. Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, has shifted to the right a little bit from his more left-leaning predecessor. Now, Keir Starmer, a lot of people consider to be left of center still. I mean, he's a labor, uh, he's the labor leader. So he's a little more left of center, but he's moderating and he's kind of, he's backed off of um, some, some anti-Brexit uh, language. He wants to, there's no going back in the eyes of labor, which means some reforms need to happen how can we change the nature of this country excuse me how can we change the nature of this country to benefit the people that live here without rejoining the european union especially because conservative policies have failed us as british people as as voters in the uk now The general election has to be called by the Conservative Party, essentially, and they're not going to. They're going to push it back as far as they can, which is why I keep saying that this is going to be the last election of the megacycle. It's going to be the last one in 2025. Now, it's going to be very, very important because labor hasn't controlled the United Kingdom for
1: 13 years, and...
0: It's going to be it's going to be a very interesting shift because after the generals after the general election we're going to have to kind of analyze how SNP is going to be doing in Scotland, how Sinn Fein is going to be doing in Northern Ireland and and things like that because if we're being honest, I would I would argue that a labor government would kind of decrease the turnout and the popu- the popularity of parties like Sinn Fein and SNP, and the Alba Party, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Welsh National Party. But the Welsh National Party, <laughs> um, it's going to be very interesting to see how a Labour government kind of suppresses those, not intentionally, not like political, uh, not like political prisoner stuff, not like Stalinization stuff, more like the people who live in Scotland who vote SNP. The people who live in Northern Ireland that vote Sinn Féin. It's going to be interesting to see if those voters kind of settle down a bit. What's interesting to see if those voters maybe shift towards Northern Ireland labor or Scottish labor and kind of relax on the status quo because a lot of the issues that came from Brexit, that came from conservative policies, will be solved. It's going to be interesting to see how many people moderate. They're like, oh, we no longer need independence because we have these things. We're going to see uh, how that happens as it develops, obviously. Now, arguably, I guess to me as an American, the most important election in the megacycle is going to be the 2024 American elections. Presidential election, Congress, Senate. For the Democratic Party, um, the House is theirs to lose especially with the recent speaker dilemma. It is currently October 24th at 10.44 a.m. And we still don't have a goddamn speaker. So hopefully uh, Democrats can ride that all the way to winning the House back. Now, the majority, the Republican majority is still slim enough that even if this didn't happen, um, I still thought that the uh, Democrats were going to win back the House. Now, the Senate is going to be more of a challenge. We have two, three, we have three... Um, Democratic senators sitting in red states, Sherrod Brown in Ohio, John Tester in Montana, and Joe Manchin in West Virginia. Joe Manchin's going to get voted out, hands down. Sherrod Brown's going to be a challenge, but I think he can do it. I know he can do it. We just, re- need, we just need as many people to get out and knock on doors, because door knocking is crucial. We need as many people volunteering for the shared campaign as possible. Because I don't want Frank LaRose or Matt Dolan or Bernie Moreno, uh, to be my senator. Especially because JD Vance is already my senator. Now John Tester, John Tester on the other hand, I am not a doomer when it comes to John Tester. I think John Tester has it in the bag. They really like him. They like the fact that he doesn't have like three fingers on this hand or something like that. So I, I, they really like John Tester. Now I also think that the presidential election is Joe Biden's to lose. I think that the only state that's likely to flip in any direction is North Carolina. And if North Carolina flips, it will be flipping from red to blue. It's going to be a tough election. There's going to be a lot of money spent. But I do think that it's just going to be a repeat of 2020, especially if the candidates are the same. There, there's only one Republican candidate, and we said this on the show. There's only one Republic, Republican candidate in the field who can beat a Democrat in 2024, and that's Nikki Haley. Now, Politico, AP, a lot of other sources have been kind of hinting at the fact that the Republican, um, like the GOP, the Republican, like the RNC specifically, has been kind of pushing um, other Republicans in the field to kind of just clear the path for Nikki Haley to, to challenge Donald Trump. And... I mean, I'm, I still don't think she can win. She's just the most likely to win. It's an electability issue. It's the fact that she drank from the Kool-Aid when she was, the, when she was Trump's ambassador to the United Nations. She drank from the Kool-Aid a little too much. But she does have some moderate policies, specifically on reproductive rights and things like that, that I feel like could win over a lot of suburban voters. Which, if you listen to this week's episode of Policy Wonk, Joe and I take a little bit of a political science deep dive into suburban voters. Um, but it's going to be a very insane uh, election cycle for the United States. And, subsequently, the world. Um, I'm not saying that the U.S. is dragging the rest of the world along with our presidential politics like we did in 2020 uh, and in 2016. But the rest of the world has a lot of elections, a lot of important elections coming up that at the end of the day, elections decide the future. So if you're not registered to vote, regardless what country you're in, if you can register to vote in your country, register to vote. Figure out where to vote, how to vote, what you need to bring to vote, and who you're voting for, what you're voting on, and vote. Be an active citizen if you can. If not, I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't. I don't really know how to help you with that one. Um, But if you, especially if if you're in the United States, if you live in the state of Ohio, which I know a lot of you do, help share it out. Help out your local party. There's always local elections going on: city councils, mayors, township trustees, auditors, county elections. You know, there's a lot going on all the time. Every year is an election year. Vote early. Vote often. I'm not going to tell you to vote blue, but vote blue. Um, If you live in the UK, vote labor. Um, But all that being said, um, I'm Kale Shaw, and this has been a recent episode of The Diplomatic Review.